Chapter Four of the Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Case. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter Four. Christine Gray, dressed for the street, stood in Mrs. Coulson's third story back meditating deeply. Her white forehead was drawn into an anxious furrow as she surveyed herself in the little mirror, but she finally breathed a relieved sigh. The result was satisfactory. Christine had resolved upon decisive and independent action, and felt that much might depend upon creating a favorable impression in the beginning. She had observed that the impressions she created were apt to be favorable, but, notwithstanding this fact, she continued to pay great attention to details. A bunch of violets floated on the top of the water pitcher, vases being unavailable at Mrs. Coulson's except in the parlor, and she critically tried their effect against her black coat. They looked extremely well. On the whole, observed Christine, regretfully returning them to the water pitcher, on the whole, I think it would be better not to wear them. He might draw conclusions which would not be to my advantage. She drew a long breath as she set out for the street, and felt very important, and withal a bit frightened as she hailed a passing car and started for the capital. Christine was about to make her first attempt at lobbying, and was not at all certain how to go about it. She had, of course, been to the Senate and House when sightseeing, but they had failed to impress her upon that occasion with the sense of awe they inspired today. The magnitude of any object, animate or inanimate, depends largely upon the point of view from which one regards it and the reason one has for approaching it. No doubt we have all seen molehills develop into mountains and shirked climbing them in consequence. Christine disliked the way the watchman looked at her as she entered the rotunda. He was quite innocent of any ulterior meaning, but she immediately felt he knew why she was there, and that his glance was compassionate and superior. She inquired her way to the house in as haughty a manner as she could command, hoping thereby to crush him and establish her social status beyond all question. She accosted the doorkeeper of the public gallery a little timidly. Could he tell her whether Mr. Rivers, of Virginia, was there? He could. The gentleman was then upon the floor of the house. Should he take her card? Christine, inwardly quaking, produced her bit of pasteboard and followed the guide summoned to conduct her to the marble room. One is inclined to wonder sometimes how many women have waited there in years past, and what tales of good and evil the dignified walls could repeat if they felt so inclined, and to wonder also how many will wait there in years to come, and what secrets will be entrusted to the polished stone. Perhaps they will be more innocent than many of those now inscribed, and the hearts they reflect more guileless and unsullied than some reflected in the past. Mr. Rivers, of Virginia, entered hastily. He was obviously annoyed as he looked from the card in his hand at the different women assembled there, and said something to the watchman, 
who shook his head helplessly, speculating inwardly why he should be supposed to know one woman from another by intuition. Christine rose nervously and stepped forward. Mr. Rivers? she said interrogatively. Miss Gray? he returned with similar intonation, and a pause ensued. I sent a reply to your letter this morning, he resumed briskly. You would have received it this afternoon had you waited. No, said Christine quietly, I should not, for I have not written to you. Mr. Rivers was surprised, and consequently took his first look at his visitor. He took a second and longer observation immediately. You see, said Christine, plunging desperately into her subject, as one swallows a bad dose quickly to have it over with. You see, your letter was for my sister, and she... She asked an appointment under the government, said Mr. Rivers. Quite so. I have many such letters. However, I wrote her this morning I hope to be able to secure something for her before very long. In consideration of my past obligations to your father, I put her claim before many others. Yes, said Christine incoherently, that's just what I came about. Please don't give it to her. What? exclaimed Mr. Rivers, such requests being somewhat new to him. At least, she continued, I don't mean just that. Won't you give it to me instead? It can't make any difference to you, and it does make a great deal of difference to me. Just use my name instead of hers. My dear Miss Gray, he ejaculated. Oh, dear, sighed Christine mournfully. Now I've got all mixed up, and you don't understand a bit. You see, it's this way. Mary don't want to go into office. You know she's a trained nurse, and adores bandages and chloroform and all those things I hate. Christine paused for breath, and Mr. Rivers smiled indulgently. The annoyed expression had vanished, also the curt, hurried intonation of his voice. And so, resumed Christine, if you give it to me, Mary can go to her bandages and her disinfectants with a clear conscience. Do you think you would like office life? inquired Mr. Rivers curiously. You do not impress me as one who would take very kindly to the monotony and confinement it entails. Oh, I shan't mind, returned the girl absently, adding in a voice she strove to make careless, but in which the tone of keen anxiety was dominant. Then you will give it to me? There is a trifling impediment, said Mr. Rivers slowly. The examination, you know. But I took it when Mary did, cried Christine, much relieved. I thought I told you. And I passed, too. Not so well as she did, of course, but I still passed. You say your sister really prefers nursing, inquired Mr. Rivers, visibly wavering. Yes, said Christine eagerly. She does indeed. And I do so want to be independent. Miss Gray, said Mr. Rivers solemnly, you bring very powerful influence to bear to gain your point. The pressure has proved too much for me. I brought no one, said Christine indignantly. I am quite alone. Yes, said Mr. Rivers laughingly. I see you are. Your strength does not lie in numbers, Miss Gray. If you can make my peace with your sister, you may regard the matter as settled, so far as I'm concerned. 
"'I ought to thank you, I suppose,' said Christine. "'But I don't quite know what to say.' "'I wish,' said Mr. Rivers gravely, "'that I was offering you something better. "'The War Department at sixty dollars a month "'is not much to be thankful for, Miss Gray.' "'It is just that much better than nothing, Mr. Rivers.' "'Your appointment will be sent immediately,' he remarked as he shook her hand cordially. "'I shall be interested to hear how you get on. "'If you have any trouble, let me know. "'My obligations to your father, Miss Gray.' "'Mr. Rivers paused abruptly, guiltily aware that the sight of the daughter "'had increased these obligations surprisingly, "'and proposed that he should furnish her with a card of admission "'to the private gallery of the house.' Christine felt as though she were walking on air as she went down the steps of the Capitol. The interview so long meditated, and privately much dreaded, had proved not unpleasant after all. It is much better, she remarked aloud, to see persons than to write to them. I always told Mary that. A long-legged youth with a twinkle in his gray eyes fell into step beside her and gravely removed his hat. Poor Mary, he said sadly. I feel for her. She has told so many things. It certainly would be a pleasant change to go somewhere and not have you suddenly appear, remarked Christine with some asperity. Well, said the boy seriously, you'll have that pleasure soon, I think, Christine. I've been notified that I passed the examination, so I'm sure of my commission at last. I don't know yet what regiment I'm assigned to, but I hope for the cavalry. Of course, there's no telling where I may be sent, but I will know shortly. Oh, Harry, she said breathlessly, not really. Really and truly, Christine. The girl paused on the lower step and laid an appealing hand upon his arm, quite regardless of the people in the street below. Harry, she said gently, I didn't mean it, you know, about not wanting to see you. Of course I was joking. You understand, don't you? and probably Harry understood, for he pressed the little hand gratefully and suggested that they go into the Congressional Library and talk things over quietly. An hour later, two self-conscious but important-looking young people emerged from the library and walked slowly down the street. "'I don't like it, you know,' he said positively, "'the idea of you in an office. "'But just as soon as I can get on my feet a little, "'I'm coming back for you.' "'Oh, Harry,' she said, with a little gasp, "'it does seem ridiculous to think that it's you and me, doesn't it?' "'Don't let's take the car yet,' he suggested as she paused on the corner. "'We have so much to talk about and so little time to talk.' "'When you come back, Harry,' she remarked as they strolled slowly on, "'I shall be quite a staid old office person, like Miss Jackson, for instance.' "'Christine!' he exclaimed suddenly. Suppose we don't wait. Of course, I haven't much money and don't know where I am going, but we could manage somehow almost anywhere. Come with me, Christine. The girl shook her head gravely. No, Harry, she said, it wouldn't be right. You know we settled all that in the library. You have to buy your uniforms and things, and they do cost such a lot. I think it's very mean to give second lieutenants such little salaries. I'm sure it's a very important position for a man to occupy, and he ought to be paid accordingly. And undoubtedly all second lieutenants would hardly endorse this opinion. 
But, she continued brightly, the time will soon pass, for we will both be busy. And then when you feel it's right for you to do it, really right, Harry, why, you can tell me so. And when you come back... Well, Christine? A mist formed before her eyes and obscured surrounding objects, but she brushed it aside impatiently. Why then, she replied with a little break in her voice, you will find me ready for my marching orders, General Fielding. And the paradise especially prepared for the young and hopeful opened its gates before them, plainly visible and apparently easy of access. We have all looked at the western sky when the sun was setting, and we have seen its scarlet and gold merge into the purple horizon, and the gray leaden clouds change suddenly into a canopy of glory. And we have thought, because we could not help it, about another world whose streets are golden and its gates precious jewels. It seems very near, that other world. We can almost reach the portal, which will open at the touch of a finger, and involuntarily we stretch out our hands. And then we realize the distance. The light begins to fade, and we look down at the plowed fields and muddy ways we must cross and feel discouraged. For we know, beyond all doubt, we will be tired when we get there, too tired to care very much about anything. We know also that the gates are not jewels after all, but iron and tightly locked, and we fear our hands are not quite strong enough to turn the key. We are sure of this because the sun has set, and we are no longer blinded by its radiance. But the boy and girl, whose combined summers numbered little more than forty, looked across the expanse of intervening time at their goal, illumined until it shone distinct and beautiful against its misty background of uncertainty. They did not think of the time which might elapse before they achieved it, nor did they realize that this time must be lived day by day, hour by hour, and that life is sometimes difficult and always perplexing. They saw their paradise clearly. Its way lay straight before them, and they entertained no doubts of reaching it at last. Why, indeed, should they? End of chapter 4